to Pod Academy. My name is Federica Di Lascio. The Natsen, in collaboration with the University of Bradford and Burbeck University, has promoted a research funded by the Economic and Social Research Council concerning the so-called living apart together category. This group includes adult people who are in a relationship but are not living together. LATs are not recognized in statistics and are counted amongst the categories of single, divorced and separated. The study was conducted between 2011 and 2012 using multi-method analysis, a quantitative representative national survey of almost 600 LATs, qualitative semi-structured interviews with 50 LAT couples, and finally, psychological biographical narrative interviews. The results of the research are presented by the journalist Angela Neustatter, author of A Home for the Heart, Miranda Phillips from the Natsen, Simon Duncan from the University of Bradford, and Sasha Rosnail from Burbeck University, and conclusions are held by Penny Mansfield, director of the marriage think tank One Plus One. We live in times when relationships have such a very hard time and you know we know from the breakdown of marriages and cohabiting and so on how very hard it is and one of the reasons I became interested too I mean it was from my own experience which led me to writing a book last year called A Home for the Heart in which I looked at different ways in which home is part of helping relationships or indeed hindering them but I mean the, the role that home plays in the way we relate and how well or badly we may relate and so on and also with our children and then I started researching lots of such a bit more and finding out how people were doing it and what they were doing but the information around was all very ad hoc very sort of anecdotal really and quite a lot of sort of quirky stuff from the states and endless stuff about Helena Bonham Carter and Tim Burton but um, not very much that added up to understanding what the picture was but eventually I found the two couples that I wrote about and one of them I thought was interesting because they're a young couple he's just 30 and they've got a small child and they have only just started I mean they've lived together for quite a long time but he's got a job in London and he really has to be in London and she said when I have a child I want to live in Bournemouth where I grew up where there's space and air and sea and forest and so on and he said well I can't see how I can do that and she said that's fine I will live in the week in Bournemouth and you come at the weekends and that's fine by me I've got family networks there and things and I have to say it seemed to me remarkably successful and they could see all the sort of positive things they could pull out of the situation they talked three times a day on the phone so there was a, a real relationship going on within the absent times and they were I thought a very good interview and rather moving interview actually because I mean it is in a way learning on the job for them. Then the other couple that I interviewed were in their 60s and had been lats for 20 years and they were very interesting because they had um, both come out of bad relationships and didn't want to live together. They were both quite clear about that. So they both lived in Yorkshire quite a long way from each other, about 50 miles from each other and he mostly would visit her in her converted barn. But they'd been doing this for 20 years and then more than that he went to America for I think it was a year on some job and that was a, a real testing moment of course. So they had to address that they felt at this stage and she knew that I mean he's rather an attractive man she knew there'd be opportunities she said one of the things we've always done is to talk about everything to try and talk about our relationship even when it's difficult and painful and all the rest of it so they'd done that and it seemed to me that they had managed pretty well I mean it was quite clear there'd been some tricky moments and in fact when he was in America she gathered from his emails and um, phone calls and so on they seem to me now a very good example of it they seem very clear in their own identities clear why they are living this way he's very urban 
suburban, she's very countryfied. Um, they're fairly sure that the restrictions on each other, if they tried to fit into each other's lives, would not be very successful. Whereas now they meet and enjoy it, and they can meet as often as they like, of course, as often as they want to make the journey, because they're both retired, and their children are grown up, and so and they didn't have children together. As they get older, they sort of have an understanding that they won't desert each other, and if it means living together to care for each other, then that's what they'll do. And I thought that's quite nice, that this is your kind of ideal situation, but you recognise that in order for your relationship to be prioritised, you may have to change the structure in which you live. So I thought they represented two very good examples of LATS, really. I mean, certainly not everything that's in the research, by any means. The research is fascinating. I mean, it it covers a huge um, social grouping spread, and it has, you know, um, different situations, carefully categorised, which I found very interesting too. And interesting to contemplate how people in different circumstances would do this, but you'll hear all about this from the researchers this morning. This was mixed method research, and we started off with a representative national survey of LATS. We asked people, are you in a relationship but not living with your partner? That yielded a sample of just under 600 LATS from across Britain. And that then formed the basis of our follow-up samples. So we approached that in two ways. We had a qualitative follow-up, which was semi-structured interviews with 50 of those LATS. And then, from a different perspective, some psychosocial interviews using a biographical narrative approach, which is a much more in-depth method of interviewing. And that's why, for that strand, we did 16 interviews. So the first key question, really, is how many LATS are there? I think we feel it's a sizable minority, really. One in ten adults or 9% of the adult population. But perhaps the more interesting statistic here is that that equates to over a fifth of people who would be classified as single. And by that, I'm including people who are never married, divorced, separated and widowed. And yet, despite the numbers being relatively large, if you like, for a group that we don't often hear about, they're only recently recognised in social research and largely ignored in terms of statistics, surveys, administrative data and therefore policy That clearly has some policy implications, but it's also frustrating for some LATs themselves. In fact, most LATs will be wrongly classified as single when they're filling in a form or a survey or the census. And the reason that's important is it's likely to entail certain assumptions about the way they live. People, quite wrongly in some circumstances, often conflate being single in relationship terms with being single in residential terms and also being alone in your life. And that's particularly the case for older people. And it's interesting, the debates around this often use quite negative terminology. They're talked about in terms of fragmentation, isolation, having social care needs and so on. And in in many cases those assumptions may be wrong anyway. But for over one in five, they're not even acknowledging the fact that that person has a partner elsewhere. So it's really quite an oversight for this group that we're not even collecting data about the fact that some of these people have a partner. I should just add that actually only a third of lats actually live on their own. So um, the assumption that they're necessarily in a single person household would also be wrong in two-thirds of cases. Who are LATs? And there are some common assumptions about LATs because you always hear about elite celebrity couples. Another assumption is that they're professional commuting couples having to live away for work, for example. In fact, we find that LATs are found across all social groups, so they're similar to the general population in terms of sex, 
the region of Britain that they live in, their ethnic origin, and importantly in terms of those two stereotypes that I just set out, social class is pretty much equally matched to the general population too. So in fact 41% come from routine or manual occupations or have never worked, which belies the idea of a kind of professional commuting class of lats. Another finding that suggests that they're not all professional commuting couples is that actually two-thirds of lats live within 10 miles of each other. It's clear that living apart isn't necessarily to do with juggling a situation that's being managed over distance. Having said all of that, there are notable differences in some socio-demographic factors, not surprisingly perhaps in terms of marital status and household type, but very notably in terms of age. And you can see quite clearly that lats are predominantly young The majority, in fact, are under 35, and the largest group, 43%, are aged 16 to 24. Now, this might lead to an assumption that actually what we're calling laps are simply a life stage, young people early stage relationships, not yet ready to cohabit, no different to what's been going on for decades and therefore why are we sort of labelling them as a group and and investigating them. And it's certainly true that some lats are in that position, though it's a much smaller percentage than the 43% of uh, young people that you see here. But it's also more nuanced than that. You can't say that all young lats are in that position and other lats completely defy this stereotype. 11% are aged 55 or over, 41% have been together for three years years or more and 19% have been together for six years or more and I should say that does include some of the 16 to 24 year olds and also some lats have come to this relationship with relatively complex relationship histories so we know that a fifth had actually lived with their partner in the past that's their current lat partner they'd lived with them in the past and had now decided to live apart. We know that 30% are either married now or had been, so they're divorced, separated or widowed. We know from some of the psychosocial interviews that there were some people who felt this was the most significant intimate relationship of their life, so that doesn't really fit with the assumption that they're kind of trying out a new relationship to see where it goes and whether it might work to live together. And we also know from that element of the research that some people can use LAT as a response to a previous trouble or difficult relationship. Why people live apart together. Just to explain those categories first, the people think it's too early in their relationship to live together now, though they envisage that in a sort of ideal or hypothetical way. That actually includes people who are not ready to live t- together, they say. They are mostly younger people in short-term relationships, perhaps, but some of them had been thinking it was too early or they weren't ready for several years. And the second category then is constraint. Those are people who would like to live together now, but they're prevented by some external factor generally a financial factor, although there are some other factors like family oppositions. What we've called situational, they live apart because of the, of the locational demands of outside agencies, typically an employer, an educational establishment. Sometimes things like a care home, one partner lives in a care home, one partner's in prison, one partner's in an army barracks. And then finally what we call preference there, those people who could live together, the external obstacles aren't so great, but they prefer not to do so. Only 8% made their main only reason for living apart together because of the women's job. Only 1% admitted to benefit loss as their main and only reason. We're talking about main and only reasons here so far. People in the survey could tick more than one option if they wanted to. About half of them did. But even if you look at who ticked benefit loss for their all reasons, that's only 4%. Most lads actually had a mixture of constraint and preference and living apart. Many experienced some sort of housing and financial constraints, even if that wasn't decisive, always. And nearly everybody in the interviews and in the surveys mentioned the 
the advantages of living apart in terms of increased autonomy, increased space, personal space. Even people who were determined to live together as soon as they possibly could, they still mentioned this advantage of living apart. Preference is a funny sort of concept. Few people, in fact, prefer to live apart in the sense of, oh, I want to live apart as my chosen lifestyle. We found quite a lot of people who had what we were called negative preference. Ideally, they might have preferred to live together to cohabit, but they were chastened by earlier experiences of, of cohabitation that hadn't worked out and had been rather painful. Or they didn't think their current partner was so suitable to live with. An extreme case to be if you had an, al- an alcoholic partner. That's what we call negative preference. Then there were obligations to others, which other people felt. Because they were bringing up children, particularly teenage children, it was their home and it shouldn't be disrupted by another partner. Or there was an infirm elderly parent. So preference is a complex subject and it's, and it's rarely sort of a clear preference for living apart together. What do they do? I'll now turn to. Here's Katie, she's rather typical actually. Her partner lived just a 10 minute drive away, they met daily and as you see they're constantly phoning and texting. That's not an extreme, that's rather typical. Here's the frequency of contact, blue is face to face, purple is by phone, text, email or web. And as you see most people are in contact frequently and to repeat random remember that almost two-thirds of them live within 10 miles of one another quite a lot within just one mile also quite a few people who live apart together are um, caring for one another some of them don't and some of them do and, and we found in the interviews those four levels which we've um, categorized there that level number one in- inclusive where partners were regularly providing comprehensive care both material care that is a physical care or financial care and emotional care and then going down a scale till we get to nominal care where it was hypothetical or, or it was absent and as you might expect the nominal care was most common among those who thought it was too early to live together. We found a similar gradation of care for children when children were in the relationship. Some lads acted like another parent and some didn't want anything to do with the, the other partner's ch- children in terms of care. Here's an example of inclusive care, George and Catherine. They'd been together for 33 years. They preferred to live apart Like Angela's example from the interviews, they actually were now talking about possibly they might have to live together because they were both getting so infirm in various ways so it would be easier for to provide this care, though they'd always prefer to live apart. Most people who live apart together seem more or less similar to to any other couple, just they happen to live apart. For most, cohabitation remains a goal or an ideal, and indeed many things like marriage and children with their partner. But at the same time, it's not just a traditional relationship because these people are doing capitalism in a, in a different way and it does give the potential for greater autonomy and space in relationships, especially perhaps for women. By psychosocial, I mean that we're starting from a perspective that sees people, sees individuals as becoming who they are through the history of their relationships, that we all become who we are because of the relationships we've had in the past, from our earliest relationships through across biographical time to the most recent relationships, and that we are all subject to unconscious as well as conscious forces. So we have an inner life, an inner world that has irrational motivations that often elude our own understanding that we can't always explain why we behave how we behave and that we often behave in ways that sabotage our best intentions. So we may have a set of ideas, a set of beliefs about how we want to be in the world, about how we want to live but somehow we find ourselves not quite doing that at times. So we depart from our kind of stated principles and a moral compass and that we have feelings that are often very powerful drivers of how we behave that we can't quite put into words. So we used a method that involved asking just 
basically one simple question of people to start with. Can you tell me the story of your life and personal relationships, all the events and experiences that are important to you? The brief findings, first of all, they allow us to look at people's current lack relationships in a life history perspective, through the history of their lives. And we found considerable diversity amongst our interviewees. We've broken them down into four groups. Younger people who had never cohabited with a partner and had previously had a few short-term lap relationships, some of whom were hoping to live with their partner, you know, who already had an idea they might do that, but some, some of whom weren't considering that. The second group we identified were people in midlife who were mostly married to their lap partner and all of whom had previously lived with their lap partner. So if, if they weren't married, they had previously cohabited with this partner and this partner was the most important person in their life and most of them expected that they would live together again in the future. Then we also identified a group for whom this current lap relationship came after the breakdown of a previous significant married or cohabiting relationship where it was kind of you might say I suppose the recovery relationship. Now they may or may not have seen this as being a really significant relationship but in terms of their story of their life the previous relationship was the really big relationship. Then finally we had another group a fourth group who had really quite complex relationship histories. These are people who often don't get studied by people looking at, at sort of family life but people who had kind of quite messy relationship histories with quite a lot of different partners, sometimes having been married or cohabiting several times and having had other relationships, non-cohabiting relationships as well. Well, what can we understand psychosocially? Well, first of all, I think we can see that the stories that people told us revealed a complex web of personal, biographical and relational factors that play a part in living apart together relationships. And that putting physical distance into a relationship or keeping distance within an intimate relationship was related to one or more of the following. So we identified kind of four psychosocial factors going on in the stories that our interviewees told us. And one of these was that living apart for some people was a way of trying to protect themselves from further emotional pain or abuse. So these were interviewees who'd had previous troubled relationships which had left a significant kind of psychological mark on them. For instance, aggressive or controlling behaviour, domestic violence, abuse, or who had been through a partner's death. Or some of this group also had a history of abandonment and fractured relationships from childhood, sometimes from childhood into the present, sometimes just carrying that kind of traumatic experience from childhood. A second way of thinking about these lap relationships for some people was that they were trying to protect others particularly children, other family members. So these were interviewees who were putting a sense of family obligation and a desire to ensure the well-being of their dependents before living with their partners. And quite often this was, as Simon said, sort of teenage children, but sometimes younger children, and sometimes it was elderly parents. Third way in which we can understand these relationships psychosocially is that for some people, living apart, having distance in the relationship was actually the only way that the relationship was possible. It was a way of trying to make a relationship sustainable and possible that would be threatened by too much close day-to-day contact or interdependence or emotional intensity. These are people who often kind of recovered quite substantially from previous sort of traumatic experiences in their lives. So they weren't in, in a kind of direct way trying to protect themselves in the way that the first group were. But there was a sense in which they felt that relationship was possible because they lived apart. That that space between them was what allowed intimacy to be possible. And this is sort of subtly different from the final strand that we saw. These were people who were putting the distance in the relationship in order to prioritise themselves and needs that they had for self-realisation and autonomy. And this may be one of the ways that we kind of commonly think about LATS, but it was actually only one of the ways.
always um, that, that people came to be lats. Um, these were interviewees who wanted to have time or space for their individual paths and passions. So, you know, a particularly time-consuming uh, hobby in some cases or career that was more important to them than living with their partner. So they, they very much talked in terms of what they needed as an individual and their needing space for themselves. As I think we've demonstrated, living apart together is a pretty common relationship practice. I mean, it's definitely a minority relationship practice, but it's there and it's a significant minority practice. Yet it has been ignored by the census and by pretty much all social, family and household surveys. So it's rarely recognised by those collecting administrative information about users of services in the public or private sectors and means that many people who are in relationships are currently misrecognised as being single. So we suggest, first of all, that LAT um, should be a recognised relationship status. Um, It should be an option that people can fill out when they're asked to complete forms. Um, It should be counted in official statistics and surveys because it's important for all those of us who are trying to understand contemporary relationships, contemporary family life. We also think that there should be consideration given to extending some sort of legal recognition to those in LAT relationships on an opt-in basis, I mean not compulsory at all, but to those who want it. That would mean, for instance, that they could secure recognition by healthcare providers as next of kin. Because at the moment, if you will be asked when you go to hospital or whatever, and if you're married, then that's very straightforward. If you're not, then it's well, you do you have a cohabiting partner. But the option of having a partner who you don't live with is never raised to people. Yet many people have a cohabiting partner who they would consider to be effectively their next of kin. We also think that there should be recognition of the prevalence of and the needs of those in that relationships by providers of health, personal, social care services, and particularly by those interested in providing family and relationship support, given the significant minority of people who are living in that relationships. The fact is that whatever kind of relationship that we're looking at in terms of status, or whether it's cohabiting or not, the way that people manage togetherness and separateness, I think, is, is really important. And I think this study, because of its very interesting methodology, is exciting because it actually opens up all those things um, so that we can actually understand you know, the numbers of people, but who is living in that way, but actually looking a little bit at what the practice means. I mentioned this thing togetherness because I think that's quite an important way in which people describe the need to be in a couple relationship. And as I said, there are different levels of togetherness. And I think in my understanding of some of the findings was explaining that to us a little bit more. What I'm also interested in is, in a sense, there's almost assumption, shock, horror, that people are in a relationship and they're not living together. And, you know, when you start to talk about the 60s, how it was the time when more people got married than ever did before or since. I think somebody described it as people kind of like lemmings jumping off sort of a a cliff because it was a sense of marriage was about the way in which you defined yourself as an adult and being part of the 60s was I want it and I want it now and I want it young. And so the average age of marriage came down to I think something like 21 for a woman and 23 for a man. And then in a sense we saw in the 80s where the study that I did on newlywed marriage which was on the sort of cusp of the 70s and 80s only a quarter of people were actually living together before they got married. But what we saw in the 80s, gradually uh, living together before marriage was the norm, and indeed increasingly an alternative to marriage. And so when I think of the the group here, the young people who are perhaps in dating relationships, the fact that they're not living together might actually be quite interesting, because there's been a lot of discussion, certainly 
certainly in terms of relationships and in looking at perhaps that people move into living together relationships maybe too soon and unnecessarily and looking at the way that people will experience a kind of mini divorce in their 20s and particularly people who move in together either maybe as students or in their early 20s so to some extent a kind of view that in a way we could have sexual relationships that are not domesticated sexual relationships may be quite a good thing in terms of other things that we're discovering about the sort of the couplings in in people's late teens and 20s looking at the sort of the reasons people there was I think 31% thought it was too early I think that's a really quite a helpful thing is that people are thinking about living together in that kind of way I think the constraints maybe should be concerning if in a sense people who want to move in together maybe either get married or to actually cohabit who find it just very difficult to do that because certainly for those people they're actually not being able to practice their relationship in a way that they think is important to them and I think in this present time with housing being such an issue that may be increasingly a point that we have to consider. The situational and the, well, the preference, the negative preference, I think that's interesting the degree to which people are ambivalent about the value of sharing a home together but also I think it's interesting perhaps grow a growing thing for people who have finished a relationship and have children where they are actually saying I want to have a relationship but I don't want to impose my relationship on my children as being another kind of my new partner is going to be sort of like a father. I think that's quite interesting I certainly have observed amongst my own generation a number of women who after their divorce had significant relationships, lovers who were very important to them and didn't want them to move in because they felt that that would upset the stability for their children and I actually have to say looking at those families 10-15 years later I think that was of great value to those children and to those families. I'm not sure that I would feel that this present research would justify looking on LATS as a status I'd want to actually get a sense of both parties. This is research that was one person's view and one thing I remember in actually studying people who got married, interviewing them three months after the first interviews, three months after the, the wedding, I think we commented in that book that sometimes the only thing that they seemed to agree on was the actual date of the wedding when they started to have sex they didn't agree about when it became serious there's lots of things legal recognition well certainly the whole thing about next of kin and I think certainly I work a lot with medical practitioners GPs nurses health visitors and I think there is a, an awareness of being sensitive to how people define their own relationships and I think that recognition by providers is really really important this notion of who is significant in your life But I think the last point for me is that a very key feature of strong and stable couple relationships, whether they're married, heterosexual, same-sex, is the Robert Weiss called reliable assurance, whether people felt they could rely on a partner when they were ill or when they had financial problems. And I think the fact that only 20% of the lap couples said that their partner would care for them when they were ill, and I think it's 34% that they would turn to their partner if they had a problem they were unable to sort out is something that is concerning so far as we are increasingly given the disruption to the provision of services that we're seeing now and we will see any more of, having to recognise the real importance of that kind of reliable relationships for people in terms of building social capital and certainly for older people. And it's interesting that you were saying that some older people, they were thinking that they might have to move in together in order to perhaps enjoy that or to be perceived 
perceived in that way. So it's fascinating research. I think it's what I would call beautiful research because I love it when people actually look at it in those different ways. It gives us so much to understand about the nature of modern relationships. But most of all, it kind of underlines how fragile they are, how complex they are, and how incredibly important they are to all of us. 